Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to InsureTech Amplified. Today, we are joined by Ivan O'Neill, a co-founder and the CEO of Wooey. Really? Anyway, Ivan, thank you for coming on the show. It's great to have you here. And before we jump into the, the main topic, let's get a bit of your background for some context, and also just explain to me why Wooey. Go for it. So my uh, thanks, Michael. It's great to be here. Just a little bit about me. Uh, grew up in Washington State, small town called Walla Walla. Enjoyed that whole area and then went down south to Southern California for college, uh, studied international relations. And after that, have been in software and tech ever since. So got my start in video games. I've done smart electrical grids at a utility, smart meters, electric cars, helped write standards for the smart home. And in 2012, moved to San Francisco to work in Silicon Valley for a tech company called iControl Networks. And we made the, the largest smart home platform at the time for companies like ADT, Comcast, Xfinity, and Time Warner Cable Spectrum. And, um, after that company exited, I was doing a corporate thing and uh, 2018 hit, 2017. And with all the wildfires that we experienced in California, and even at that time, really bad air, just seeing the devastation of these communities and of the forest that I like to hang out in um, really brought home for me climate change and the impact it was having on communities. And so started doing some research, uh, learning about all the different aspects of this. And in 2020, ended up leaving my job during COVID and met my co-founder, who's a really bright geospatial data scientist oh, wow. and has a great background in um, remote uh, sensing, forestry, water, understanding all the different elements of climate, botany, and um, together we launched Wooey and why Wooey? Um, well, if you're in the insurance wildfire business, there's a thing called the wilderness urban interface that we talk about a lot. And that's where these communities are being affected by, you know, they're the front lines of climate change in the United States and really around the world. So we uh, took a couple of those vowels and, and doubled them up and that, that five letter domain was available. So. It was uh, one of those things we were riffing on with a little alcohol and we just went with it. And so we got into this. Yeah. No, go ahead. I was just going to ask why go into the insurance because it is this a pure insurance play that you're making or is it sort of ancillary to insurance, supplementary to it? Like what is the play? So I would call us adjacent to insurance. Okay. Uh, we offer them a way to improve their customer relationship. Uh, get much better at underwriting and tailoring policies and premiums to a specific property and structure and a way for them to reduce their portfolio risk. So loss control, underwriting, and and portfolio analysis. So talk to me about what's happening in California right now. And by that, I just mean State Farm made an announcement at the beginning of this month, right? That And they're the largest homeowners. Do I have that right? The largest home insurer in in the state of california that they're no longer going to be selling policies in california for homeowners do i have that right you got that right 20 percent uh, of the market they have say it again what percent 20 
So just and, tell me, just tell me why they do this. Tell me what's wrong in their risk portfolio that can't that allows them not to make money here. But also further to that, like what does somebody do who buys a house in California and can't get insurance for it? Like how does that work? That's that's really the knock on effects, and and not just State Farm. We have the number two farmers insurance just came out that they've unofficially stopped writing new policies. Yeah. And number four, uh, st um, Allstate stopped, got out of the market in late 2022. Right. Uh, and and we've seen anybody. several other. And they didn't that's announce right. it. They didn't tell anybody. Yeah. Go ahead. Irish uh, goodbye. And then we had Geico close up all of their retail offices. So you can still call them and go online but they don't want you to, they don't want to be seen as being offering business at the retail level. AIG Chubb, they pulled out, they specialized in high net worth, high value homes. So they got out last year. So the admitted regulated market in California is just disintegrating right now. And, you know, depending on your political views, there's a lot of explanations State Farm cited more than just wildfire risk. It's also the fact that insurance uh, rebuilding costs here in California are between five hundred and eight hundred dollars a square foot, so a million dollars for a two thousand square foot home, and those inflation uh, driven costs are getting out of control. Reinsurance capital markets are challenging right now, so it's a real confluence of factors. They also are signaling to the insurance commissioner in California that they want to see some action and some changes in what they're allowed to charge. California is still in the lowest 10% of U.S. states as far as average homeowners premium. And with the costs of rebuild that we have, with the wildfire dangers we have, it's just no longer attractive for them to uh, continue to underwrite homes here. As far as what does somebody do if you if you want to buy a house or sell a house, I really think that we're hurtling towards a moment where there's just nothing available. And we're going to start to see that reflected in home prices and in kind of the panic. Another study that came out this last week, home uh, homes that are now required to disclose that they are in a high wildfire risk area right. sell for 4.3% less. That's $27,000 less than homes that are nearby and are also at risk, but aren't required to disclose it. So is this something that we could not have anticipated? The regulatory environment, which we are way more familiar with than I am, has been there for a while, right? And if you think about the context in which the insurance companies operate, the premiums, I presume, are capped just based on what you're saying. But home prices in California have been skyrocketing. I mean, not just in California, but in the United States in general over the past 30 years, really, to be fair. But I mm -hmm. feel like they're all kind of pushing each other into this vicious circle of the premiums are here, the home prices are here, the regulators are here, and it just goes in this circle of we're going to, this thing's going to end badly. Is this something we couldn't have seen happening or no? Oh, I think if you talk to anyone in the uh, insurance sector, the, the lights have been flashing for at least three, four, or five years now. Uh, when 2017, 2018 happened, we lost 8,000 structures in 2017, almost 20,000 in 2018. That erased 26 years of profits for the admitted carriers in California. So, you know, it, it really woke everybody up. And there's a couple of things on the regulatory side that are holding things back. And California is special, we like to think. 
And so those could be easier to address, but politically difficult. Are the insurers putting political pressure on the regulator by going, it's fine, if this is the way you want to regulate this market, that's great. But what you're going to see is house prices plummet because we're no longer going to insure these homes. So the next move is yours kind of thing. I do think that there's an element of political pressure happening here, 100%. That is part of it. There is also a very real economic insolvency issue yeah. that California needs to to reckon with. Can I get a better understanding of the wildfires as well? Look, I told you this before we started recording. I have not lived in the United States in 30-something years. And every year I feel like I see these stories about wildfires in California and when the season's over, so maybe you can explain that to me too, the conversation kind of goes away. But I feel like if you wake up on like a Thursday morning and your neighborhood's on fire, it's got to be super bad for you. But like, what's even causing this? I don't understand the way climate change causes the wildfires. And I'm really, I really never had anybody to ask before. So can you tell me how? Absolutely. So if you talk to people who study forests and ecology and climate change, they'll tell you climate change is maybe responsible for about 25% of the increased risk we're seeing. What you have to go back further to get the full picture, and that is that the entire American, North and South American continents are fire dependent. And indigenous people prior to the arrival of Europeans burned this area almost constantly every seven to 10 years, almost anywhere below 6,000 feet elevation. Why? And because this was how they tended the wild. This is how they cultivated the foods and the basket materials and made sure that they had great acorns in the Western United States, uh, made sure that they had big, tall, straight trees that they needed for those resources. And this was just how they kept it. Also, they learned that if you don't burn when you want to, nature burns when it wants to. And that is what we're dealing with is okay. the legacy of genocide. And some of it was uh, unintended, but plenty of it was intentional. And uh, outlawing fire and the United States Forest Service policy to put out every fire by 10 a.m. the following morning. And so that worked great from 1930, or the early 1900s, until about 2015. So you're saying that this burning that's happening is not just happening naturally, that people are actually going out and just doing what they've been doing for the last 100 years that, that we know about it, just burning forests for all these reasons that you've just talked about. And it worked oh, until no, 2015. No, sorry. I, sorry, go ahead. I gave you the wrong impression. The, the indigenous burning that I'm talking about happened for millennia up until uh, the late 1800s. Okay. And even if you go back to like, the 1600s to 18 mid 1800s that's when 90 percent of the people that lived in the americas north yeah. and south were killed with disease primarily got it and so you took away the human tending that was on this continent europeans show up and they're like oh my gosh this is so such a fertile place look at all these big beautiful trees and there's no one here let's have at it and uh, what they didn't realize was that that existed, that natural wealth existed because of the tending by indigenous people. So fast forward, mid 1800s to early 1900s, we did start to see these catastrophic fires. And you look 
back in the historical record, even in where I live here in Sonoma County, just north of San Francisco in California, right. we had catastrophic fires in 1860s, 1880s. And you read the newspaper reports, people were running from their homes barefoot as fires came at them and destroyed entire settlements. So very similar to what we saw fast forward to 1964 yeah. and then again in 2017. Got it. So we're seeing this pattern where if you don't tend the land, if you don't manage the fuels, if you don't shape the vegetation actively, and we've had sort of a, a wilderness mentality, that kind of John Muir, yep. this is what happens. It, it accumulates and then a catastrophic fire happens. And that's being exacerbated by climate change. But there's a backdrop here of land management decisions that we've allowed to accumulate over the last 150 years. So interesting. So what has to change? Like what, what can change and what has to change to be able to fix this? Because you can't live in a state where homes can't be insured. It's just not the way nope. it works. It's definitely not in the United States. And if, you know, you said the, the home prices drop by 4.3%, that's okay in a way. But if they drop 40%, this is a big problem. What needs to change? This isn't factoring in if home insurance premiums go up, that takes a bigger bite out of people's monthly budgets for a mortgage. That means your value of your home has to decrease as well, right? Right. What needs to change? Well, fortunately, I think, at least in California, leaders have gotten the message. I do see a ton of leadership happening and, and initiatives also at the federal level to come into the larger landscapes and start to incentivize treatments on the ground. So it's a combination of reducing fuels and tending the land better. I think there's a lot of ways for that to go off the rails uh, and go too far. We're always dealing with pendulum Pendulums. swings, yeah. but um, that's a big part of it. And so private property owners though, are a big factor here. In California, they own 25% of the forest. The federal government owns about 50% and the remainder is, is private industrial uh, timber owners. So, you know, it's a combination of all those and there's hundreds of millions of dollars uh, going into projects, but those take a long time to permit. There's environmental green tape that the governor is trying to cut through, but there's limits. And then there's just uh, the incentives and the, the labor force that uh, needs to exist there. And that's just on the landscape and the fuel side. There's a whole bunch that we've learned on the science side that we could go into if you're, if you're interested. Please, because this this feels to me, and again, don't lose your thought on the science side here, but this feels to me like all this stuff exists for a reason. I always try to figure out like who the vested interests are, because if it benefits them, it's not going to change, right? So like, why did we have low interest rates in the United States for so long? And, and what did that do to the housing market? Which then, how did that complicate, how is that complicated by low premiums for home insurance, right? So if everything is cheap, if money's cheap and premiums are cheap, then housing prices, by definition, have to go higher because the demand for them just gets higher and supply doesn't change that much. So were there vested interests here? They were like, you know what, let's just keep these premiums low enough because the landowners and the homeowners, the value of their homes go up. And they were making this bet of like, if my insurance is cheap enough and my mortgage is cheap enough, I don't care if my house gets burned down in a way as long as my kids don't die, right? So why change any of these rules? But now I guess people have just said, never mind, we've got to change something here. Sorry, let's talk about the science a little bit now that we've got the finance out of the way. We can follow the money. I think that's a, always a good angle to approach things. Yeah. I'll, I want to 
I want to go back to your comment, like, oh, my home burns, who cares? Like, as long as my family's safe, like, it's just stuff. I met with a property owner who was a customer of ours, and she told me that she used to think that. And then she saw the hell her friend went through over three years to rebuild her house, not being able to take any vacations, living, you know, out of a bag and decided I never want to do that. And that was her motivation for getting uh, smart and making some of these changes. Well, let's let's start with the science. And I want to come back to, you know, the money piece of this. Yeah. So on the science side of things, you know, the fuels on the landscape, that's a factor, right? And I'm not talking about clear cutting anything. This is slight modification, tending the wild a little better. What do you mean by uh, fuels especially on the landscape? near communities? What do you mean by so fuels on the So we're talking grasses, shrubs, and trees primarily. Got it. And also structures. So buildings are fuels on the landscape. Got it. And, you know, how those things are mixed and of which kind of vegetation and how high and in proximity they are yeah. really affect uh, whether that that land is going to throw off a ton of sparks or if it's uh, embers, excuse me, or if it's going to burn calmly. And there's there's a an inelastic curve there at some point with temperature and wind that, you know, all bets are off. But most fires can be uh, managed that way. So that's on the, the fuel side of things. And I'll tell you, like most people I speak to, they understand the concepts of defensible space. We've done a great job getting that word out. Enforcement has been uneven, but it's that's really changing. And the general public understands that concept and gets it. What people don't yet understand and what policy hasn't caught up with, and frankly, the insurance industry is asleep at the wheel here, the importance of hardening structures. And this is what climate adapted communities and forests mean, me. which is that it's easy to feel hopeless because we're doom scrolling in our feeds and right. you know hot temperatures and fires it's burning in Canada right now, like horribly. Uh, who thought? And so what we need to do, though, fortunately, science can show us the way and we can adapt. We can invest. All it takes is maybe even if you're handy, about $1,000. If you want to hire somebody, maybe ten dollars to $20,000 to harden your home and adapt to a new wildfire environment. And it's pretty simple stuff. You got to have the right roof. You got to have some better vents. You got to keep the area right around your house completely uncombustible. And your gutters have to be covered. And then there's a few other things. But those are those are the basics. So I did a recording with a guy. And I don't know if this is related or not. But I, I did a recording with a guy last year, or maybe at the beginning of this year, who's in the cybersecurity space. And you'll see where this comes together, I think, in a second. And he said one of the biggest results of the Lond- the Great London Fire in like 1600 or whenever it was, was that they built all these little fire stations everywhere because that before that, they just didn't exist. They were just like, okay, never mind, you're on your own. And it almost sounds to me, and once they did that, that was the outgrowth of um, fire insurance and safety insurance and stuff like that. And we can talk about how that's been fixed over time, but that's a different story. But now it feels to me like there's hardening your home, excuse me, and doing all these little things that you talk about, about cleaning the area up around. This sounds like this could, should be a gigantic business in California that people would pay for so that all the, this vicious circle that we talked about before turns into this virtuous circle where the premiums stay at the right place, the homes are protected, you don't have to run barefoot in your neighborhood to, to save your stuff. 
And then the interest rates thing, that's going to change no matter what. But there seems to be like a gigantic business to do that, no? Absolutely. The market in California, we've got 2 million, about one in five homes or structures at risk. And if you assume five, $10,000 for that, that's a $20 billion market right there. <laughs> Stuff that needs to happen over the next five years this is just adaptation you know, handy person, contractor, all that stuff. You could DIY it. So it is it is a solvable problem. Now, who benefits, who pays? Is it fair for uh, lower income folks to bear that burden? Those are all political questions. The one thing that's different about wildfire compared to just about every other peril yeah. that insurance covers is that what I do on my property affects your risk in a wildfire in a way that a tornado or a hurricane or a flood yep. affects everybody, or even an earthquake. Although my house falling down the hill could affect your house. But that's that's the one unique difference. And in California, with the way that we've managed land use planning, we've put a lot of suburbs right on the outskirts of urban areas. Everybody wanted that two-car garage and four-bedroom house and American dream. And they're sometimes separated by as little as 12 feet, right. six feet off the property line on each side with a nice flammable fence right down the middle. <laughs> right. And any home within 50 feet of each other, that's enough fuel on that landscape. If one home catches on fire, about 10 minutes later, you're likely to see all the neighboring homes within 50 feet uh, on fire or near it. Yeah. There's, there's got to be a business out there like FPAS, Fire Protection as a Service, or just like Property Destruction as a Service. You know, in Japan. In That's wooey. <laughs> Sorry, in Japan. I want, you to, I want you to finish that in a second. But in Japan, right, because the, the concentration of homes is actually really high. And a lot of the homes historically had been wood. People literally just kept bottles of water outside their house. Now, they didn't have the same type of fire problems, but if your house caught on fire, and the way Japanese society works as well is that if your house burned down and it caused your neighbor's house to be burned down too, it's on you. Like, that's how society looks at it. Like, that was Tanaka-san's fault because that dude was not taking care of his house. And that's true for Burn almost that, everything. That Japan, candle right? and he fell asleep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's a cultural thing, for sure. Yeah, super interesting. It, it doesn't, it's no, no... uh no coincidence that a lot of people who move out to these areas are, you know, a little more on the, the freedom side of yep. the, the spectrum. Yep. And they don't take too kindly to government rules and codes and regulations. And so uh, California is a little better with, but you go to Oregon, you know, you're going to be greeted with a shotgun if you're, you've got a badge and you say, hey, I'm from the government. I'm here to assess your house and help you be wildfire safe. But then how do you really make these, because now that I understand this, right, how do you make these communities really climate adapted? Because it's more than just protecting the house and taking the fuel off the ground, right? I mean, there's got to be a mindset change here that has to take place. In other words, if you want your property to maintain its value, and frankly, if you want your community to be safe, and you want to live in California, you have to do this stuff. No? You're absolutely right. There is a sweet spot where if you live on more than a quarter acre of land, which is about two, two times the size of a suburban lot, you pretty much control your risk. Below that, now you're in, in the, the mix with everybody else. And I would say 
I also serve on the board of a fire safe community wildfire organization. Sure. It's immensely gratifying and there is tremendous groundswell of support amongst the community and a recognition that things need to happen. And I think that's uh, one of the other great parts about California. There's a a great sense of community and and civic uh, responsibility, but um, it only takes that one person. That's the, that's the challenge. But are we, are we ending up in a situation where we'll get like, you know, proposition fire protection and that everyone's going to have to abide by these rules. Look, you don't want to over-regulate, right? But on the other hand, it's not a free-for-all either. Somewhere in the middle has to be better. And, and you said just now, like I said, shouldn't there be fire protection in the service? And you're like, that's wooey. So tell me, because I didn't anticipate getting there, but tell me, what is what are you doing inside the business to encourage and also to, to build these climate-adapted communities? Yeah, so we make software that communities, fire agencies, property owners, insurers can use to quantify, understand, and mitigate wildfire risk. So we're 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 climate adapted, but we're focused first on wildfire. Okay. And you know, we see lots of other opportunities, but we got to focus in one place. And so the way that works is we're focused first and foremost on the end customer, the the person, the decision maker who's home is at risk and wants to take action. So how do we offer them a really engaging user experience that lays that out and makes it simple for them to go from at risk to adapted? That's that's job number one. So we built out uh, the software that provides them with great insights and a really rich report and a two-way interaction that they can see what they need to do break it down, make it simple, get help if they want it, and then show that they've done the work. So that's that's number one. On the community side, you know, this is taking a lot of different forms in, in the United States and in the Western US. Uh, there's about 5.3 million homes that face this risk in the Western 13 states, okay. 2 million in California, as I said. So in different areas, you know, the local fire agencies take the lead. And for some, that's great because, you know, someone with a badge has that kind of credibility and, and trust. In other parts, that's seen as um, intrusive and, and not helpful. So community wild, wildfire organizations, firewise groups, et cetera, they can take the lead in a lot of places, offer these programs to rebate people for doing work and to start doing assessments. And we provide the software for them to do that. Also on the agency side, same thing. And then finally, on the insurance side, yeah. uh, this is where they want to see evidence of action, or if they want to understand their portfolio risk and monitor performance and compliance over time, uh, we're talking with them about how to make that possible. It almost sounds like the Fitbit for um, for fire protection, if you understand what I mean. So, and it's more than that, but I'm just trying to simplify it so I can make sure that I understand this, right? So you write software as a service to provide this information to people so that they can then get a better understanding of where they stand from a protection standpoint. And I presume at some level, if, they're, if they are doing a better job at this, that there's some relationship once you get to the insurance company, to the insurance company say this neighborhood, because there should be some public pressure, some community pressure on you like, dude, if your house burns down and mine, mine goes down, I'm coming after you kind of thing. But if everybody does it together in a collective way, well, then everybody's safer, which then gets back to this virtuous circle we were talking about, which means your premium should either go down or say stable. And then the insurance companies can feel comfortable because you're providing them, 
I presume at some parametric real-time data level, with the information to flow back into their systems, it says, okay, Sonoma County's fine, kind of thing, or as good as it can be. And because of that, we have enough information now where we now we feel comfortable and enough data to go back into the market and insure those homes. Is that fair? That's the vision. I don't think that we're there yet, but that is that is the direction we're headed. And uh, like you say, it's it's a it's it's noom. It's the the health and wellness, uh, yeah, you know, nudge that that people need. And we're we're setting new norms. No one likes dry, untrimmed bush. Like let's just call a spade a spade. Yeah. And we need to set that kind of standard and expectation uh, in our communities. And what's the, what's the uptake here from a community perspective? I read a lot about homeowner associations in the United States, and you're right, like there's an economic bifurcation too, right? Because the low-income family is going to have a much harder time doing this, but there's subsidies in the United States for almost everything to kind of even out society. We can talk about whether that's the right way to do it or the wrong way to do it or not, but that's what's been done for centuries, right? And at some level, if, if you want your less fortunate neighbors to die, then it's on you. Do you know what I mean? Like I say this to people for regular insurance. If you want to walk outside of your house, if you're comfortable stepping over people that have died because they didn't have health insurance, who wants to live in that kind of society? And at the same level, you don't want your neighbor's home to burn down even if you live in a mansion and they live in a smaller house because they can only afford to rent kind of thing, yeah? Exactly. Neighborhoods tend to segregate themselves a little sure. more than that, but you're, you're absolutely right. And the way, like I said, the... Your neighbors puts you at risk. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so this, you're, you're all in it together, whether you like it or not. And you can have uh, people with mansions who don't take care of things or are vulnerable and, and that puts you at risk. And so, you know, when I think about uh, models for this space, I look at the early days of the rooftop solar industry yep. where we provided tax credits and rebates for installing rooftop solar. We had a, a million solar roofs initiative in California under Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was governor. Uh, let's do 2 million wildfire adapted homes yeah. in California. So the the other thing though, and, and this is you know a little personal belief, there is a lot of government led initiatives and that's just kind of how California likes it, but yeah. they kind of got to get out of the way. Like we need to figure out a way to unleash the power of the private sector to address this problem real quickly and at scale. And when you're dealing with public grants and rebates and all this stuff, half the money goes to overhead and administrative, and it takes three years to get a rebate check out to somebody. So that's just not a workable model. And I don't know how we overcome that. Yeah, this is, this is where things get really tricky, right? Because the purpose of government is to make the lives of the citizens of the people that elect that government better. But what happens over time is that the, the bloat just becomes overwhelming. And you've got to, like you said this, I think even when we were recording, the pendulum has to swing back the other way a little bit and get closer to the middle where you want to create the right incentives for people to do this. But the, if the private sector can handle it on their own without gouging people, right, then mm -hmm. it's a better solution. And yeah, because... I feel like, and I don't say this out loud a lot, I feel like here's the way it works in most places, yeah? The government wants to build a bridge somewhere. So they go to private contractors to build it. And they say, okay, put a, put a, um, a sealed bid out there. 
and somebody bids a billion dollars, another person bids a you know, billion and a half, and another person build, bids two billion dollars. And the guy who bids two billion wins. And you're like, why does that make any sense? Well, because the half a billion dollars extra goes into somebody's pocket or a few people's pocket. And since it's all being paid by tax money, nobody really counts it and nobody cares. This is, this is the problem. And I think this is the perception that a lot of people have. And that's why they want to push yeah. stuff back to the private sector where it's so much harder to grift in that way. And, and I think that if you really look at it hard, it probably also impacts insurance premiums and all this other stuff too. Anyway, that's just my two yes. cents on grift. I'm, I'm, I'm picking up your two cents. <laughs> I think here's the thing. The thing I hear about why uh, there should be such a strong role for public sector and, and they're, they're valid arguments. One is it's a community thing. So we need everybody kind of hearing this and getting engaged. I don't think that's that, that a public agency has a monopoly on, on getting the word out. The second thing is, uh, oh, you know, these private companies are going to mislead people and they won't do the right thing. And, uh, you know, we, we have online reviews and ratings for a reason. People work with people who are valid. And the insurance companies, if they were allowed to charge the right premium, that would provide the economic signal about what works and where someone stands. That's our electric meter in the solar uh, industry analogy. So yeah. because California suppresses insurance costs and uh, the insurance commissioner uses that office as a springboard to other higher political aspirations, yep. they get in the way of that. And, you know, there's a give and take, but um, anyway, we could, uh, we could talk more about that if you want. No, I do. I think, look, I think it's really important. I don't think you should have stopped that thought. I think it's super important, right? Because if we're going to, if there's going to be a free market or if you're going to believe in the free market at some level, well, then capping the insurance premiums. Look, it seems to me like the insurance companies are just going, look, you guys sort out your house. We know what the solution to this thing is. We're going to write any new policies until you get sensible, and what the yep. news is going to do, the news is going to report that the insurance companies are being the non-sensible people, when in reality, again, everything is kind of, there's a middle ground. But in reality, it does seem like I suggested at the beginning of this conversation, the insurance company just going like, look, we're out. We're not out forever, but we're out until you get your house in order. And when you do, we're happy to come back because last year we lost $2 billion or $3 billion or whatever the number was that you said. And yeah, we're not in business to lose that amount of money. We don't necessarily have to make $25 billion, but why do we have to come here to lose money? And the way you've set up the infrastructure here is we just can't make a dime on this. Does that make sense? Yep. I think you hit the nail on the head. There's two key things in California Go for it. that need to change on wildfire. One is uh, insurance companies are limited by regulation to only increase rates 6.9% at a time. If you go 7% or above, there's a very lengthy court review hearing process that consumer advocates come in and they drag it out for years. And they have plenty of examples that if you don't, if you go over 7%, you're not getting it. And then the second one is uh, reinsurance costs aren't being allowed to be accounted for. I'm not sure there should be a separate line item for that. I just think let the insurance companies give them more leeway on how much to charge. Let them compete. Let them compete. And they will find the best price and, and they'll offer and underwrite more people if they're able to. And the last one is we don't, in California, this is pretty unique, uh, also the reinsurance piece, but the way that we calculate perils and how much that factors into a premium, 
is a backward-looking 20-year average and not a forward-looking catastrophe model. And we allow it for earthquake coverage, but we don't allow it for any other premium. Right. And with climate change and all those things, those are increasingly factors. So historical performance is not a predictor uh, of future performance. Yeah. I think we should end there. Ivan O'Neill, a co-founder and the CEO of WUE. This was awesome. You've got to come back and do this again. Love to. Anytime. Great chatting with you, Michael.